Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to talk to him. One of the great arts of conversation. Sounds charming. The only thing that sounds better is the radio. Well, I tune right in at midnight. Pretend it to the radio waves. I hold my thoughts till they were just right. Always listen to the Bradley J. I was open to views with ears on the news. As they talked, I was focused so much. I called on the phone in my car and my home. Came out in control and in touch. The middle, the sound, and the thoughts that surround when they said, Speak up, I didn't walk. J Talk. J Talk. WBZ. WBZ, this is part two, hour two with Doug Arian, and we're talking about the events that were part of and led up to the Apollo mission that uh, culminated in a walk on the moon or, or culminated in a moon landing. And we're, as I mentioned, we're with Douglas Arion and we had gone through uh, some of the flights that had sh- taught lessons, mm-hmm. both through success and failure. And I guess now we, we can get right into the, the Apollo 11 flight. And I guess I will ask you where, where is a good place to start this? Is there anything we need to know that was different about the initial parts of it, the takeoff or the lead up to it? Any any remarkable things to know? Well, uh, the the three preceding missions nine, eight, nine, and ten laid out the key thing. So eight was the one that went up at Christmas of sixty eight and was the first one to go around the moon. So we could go around the moon and come back. Nine. They flew the full Saturn V and tested the lunar module for the first time and flew it. That's big. That's big. And they did that in Earth orbit. It's like, we're just going to get up around the Earth. Un, you know, Can we pull it out of there? Can we turn it around? Can we undock? Can we dock? Can we fly it? Can we maneuver it? And Apollo 10 went up to the moon, undocked, flew the limb down to within 10 miles of the lunar surface, then brought it back up, redocked, and then they returned to the Earth. I, I, I can only imagine they must have been pretty frustrated with, like, it's just there. Can't you just let I me know. land? Yeah. But they didn't <laughs> no, have enough No, you got to fu- bring it back. They probably didn't have enough fuel they, right. it, on it, that it, trip. And it was designed specifically to do that test. And then by the time Apollo 11 goes up, you know, all the other things had basically been tested, right? We, uh, With the exception of actually landing it and then using the ascent stage to come back. But all the key technologies, getting to the moon, around the moon and back, operating the LEM, operating the LEM around the moon. Now we're ready to go land. We have all the pieces. And they did that. So between 10, amazing. And, between 10 and 11, there's certain untested stuff like landing on a surface. 
navigating to a correct spot, landing on the surface, right, and getting back, and getting back. That's right. And all of it came together in July of 1969, perfectly. Does anybody calculate the odds that they could do that? I mean, let's say here we are after 10, we're going to go for it and come back. What are the odds that it will really succeed? They couldn't have been that high. I would think after 10, the, 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 the odds would have been really good. It's like all the key, the, almost everything we're going to have to do, we've done. We've tested this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece, and this piece. There's one more piece we have to do, and that's the next step. So One uh, little thing going wrong down on the moon, like, like a leg of the lander hits a rock and tips over. Right. You're done? Could you have gotten out and put it back? Oh, no way. No way. The thing weighs too much. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. I, I, and, and the fact that, um, uh, remember, we had sent separate spacecraft up that had landed on the moon. We had landed Surveyor on the moon, um, which was important because until you land on it, you don't really know what the surface is like. You know, it, it could be, you know, beachy sand-like, and you get in there and your, you know, your, your landing pad sinks in a foot and a half. Did they land? Was the Sea of Tranquility an area that had had something else land? Because just because the surveyor lands over here and it's okay, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it is beachy sand in this other area. It's possible that that, and in fact, the rocks are different in different areas. But their but their basic texture, once you know it in a couple of places, you you, you have a, quite a bit of confidence of what you're going to land in. So, uh, but from but, the photos, it looks like it might be an inch and a half or two inches of fine dust over more firm mm-hmm. stuff. Exactly. Exactly. That's what they found, and that's why you know Armstrong, when he first stepped off, is like, okay, it's fine, it's granular, it looks pretty much like what we expected. What is uh, it? Is granular meaning like sand or like finer dust? Uh, moon dust fine. is actually even finer than our sand. It's much finer, and in fact, that turned out to be a problem, and leads into a current piece of research one of my colleagues is doing that I'll tell you about because it connects to this. It's about the next moon landing, Okay. hopefully we will do. Um, the dust on the moon is very, very fine. It would stick to their, their suits. You come back into the spacecraft, you have all this fine dust that can get into things. It's very hard to clean off. How is there dust if there's, if there's no erosion? Because there's well, no weather. There is a, there is a form of erosion. It's very fine. It's because there are high energy particles flying through space. We're protected by it here because they hit our atmosphere. They get stuck in the air and they, and they get eaten up. So they're not a problem here. But they bombard the surface of the moon, and slowly but surely, that does weather the rocks. Wow. Now it doesn't break them down the way water and wind do here. So it's not like you know the Grand Canyon that gets cut. Uh, or the fact that you can wash away a beach in a season, but over millions of years to billions of years. So those two inches of dust could have taken two billion years to get there. That's correct. That's correct. It's a very slow process. We have Mike in Maine, who is very much into aviation of all kinds, and he's he's actually a contributor to to a podcast called Airplane Geeks, and I hadn't thought that you would be into this kind of aviation, but of course you would. Hi, Micah. Say hello to Doug. Hello, Doug. Very nice to meet you, and what a great first hour it's been. Well, and, uh, yes, I'm very much into the space program. And I wanted to uh, – there were a couple of apocryphal stories uh, that are just absolutely marvelous about Gemini and that took place with Apollo 10 that I thought that uh, maybe uh, I, I could relate to you and you could uh, – or, or, or that would be interesting to the audience. 
Um, one is with, with Gemini 10, uh, Snoopy, which was the lunar module, was piloted by uh, Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan, who had flown together before in, uh, uh, in Gemini 9A. And that's when Gene Cernan did a spacewalk, and they had actually made a pact. And this is not apocryphal. This is pretty true from what I understand, that if Gene Cernan could not get back in the capsule, it would be so bad for the space program that one astronaut, that he was supposed to be cut loose and Tom Stafford would come back by himself, that uh, they had made a pact that if that were to happen, that they would re-enter together and they would both die. So they were very, very close. And the apocryphal story goes about Gemini 10, that uh, they specifically short-fueled the lunar module because they were two hotshot pilots that were going to cut off their buddies, uh, Neil Armstrong and, uh, and Buzz Aldrin. And if they had the opportunity, they would land on the moon and come back, but it was specifically short-fueled, which is keep just a great it. story. Is that true? You to keep you them from they, doing it. They could have fueled it enough, but they didn't want to because they figured they would go for it. Well, uh, Gene Cernan and Tom Stafford told that story forever and ever and ever, and Gene passed just a couple of years ago. I, I wrote a eulogy for him, but uh, I, I got it at least firsthand from, from, from Bill Barry, who you probably know, uh, who's a chief NASA historian, that it's apocryphal, that that lunar module was not designed to land, but that's the story that they told forever when they would talk, tell their hangar talk. But isn't that a beautiful story? That's a great story, and, and, and uh, pilots of that era definitely uh... – always want to one-up anyone and everyone, so it, it's certainly in character. Micah, uh, thank The you. other one I want... Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Is, there, is it time for another one? Yeah. In Gemini, Gemini uh, on 7, which was uh, the long-term 14-day flight with uh, Jim Lovell, who flew around the moon with Frank Borman in Apollo 8, uh, they, were, they were proving in Gemini uh, 7 that people could live in space that long. And if you've seen the Gemini capsule, and that capsule is in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, Udrahazi Center. I've seen that capsule in person. It's a tiny little thing the size of a phone booth. And they were there together in their spacesuits for 14 days. And the story goes, again, I don't know, this one I don't know if it's true or not, but when they finally splashed down and they opened up the, ca the hatches to the capsule, that the rescue crew actually vomited from the smell from that capsule having been together in that capsule so tight for 14 days. And it just shows what kind of hero astronauts, what kind of pilots these guys were and what they would suffer through because of a program that they truly believed in. Well, that's more information than I had before by a lot, but they probably were used to it, right? The yeah. Smell. You know, you know how the that smell. gets, but you know, not, not, not to the outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Micah, thank you very much as always. Appreciate it. You were talking about some interesting facts on the lunar landing module. What, it's LEM. What does yeah, LEM yeah. stand for? Lunar, lunar excursion, excursion module. The LEM. So you got to keep it super duper light, and things like seats. Initially, they had seats, and they had to get rid of the seats. So, so when you're initially designing this this craft, the the first thing you realize is, um, it's never going to be in air. So when you're designing the command module and the main parts of the rocket, they have to be sort of aerodynamic because they're going to travel through air during launch or reentry. Well, the LEM's never going to do that. So it can be all spindly. It can be any shape you want it to be. So that's a big advantage. But you also have to lift it and get it all the way to the moon. And it has to lift itself off of the moon. And so you want it to be light. And you also have to make it small because it's got to fit inside what is the third stage of the Saturn V. So it's got to be small. 
And so in many of the early designs, there were all sorts of other features that had to go away. And one of them was seats because you don't have enough room and weight for seats. So in order to fly the thing, they had to stand. In order to stand, they had to have sticky stuff on the floor, a kind of Velcro, so that they could keep their boots down because the initial final parts of the flight, they're weightless in there. So, so, so two guys went down, correct? Two guys went down. Why do they need two guys? Because guys weigh a lot. Human beings weigh a lot. Couldn't they have done it with one? Um, in principle, you could do it with one. But You fly, this, you land, you get out. Yeah, you could have done it with one. Um, but certainly having two, uh, there's a lot of things you can do with two people that right. you can't do with one in terms of, remember that going to the moon wasn't just going to the moon, okay, we walked around and we came back. There were scientific experiments and equipment that was put down there, uh, not just on the first mission, because remember, Apollo 11 might have been, let's just get somebody on the moon and come back. We still did a lot of science, a lot of instruments got put down, but then there were Apollo 12, 13, 14, 15, and so on that were going to be doing more and more science, and for that you needed a crew of two. And so there was every reason to design it okay. around a crew of two. So how high there. was their orbit above the lunar surface? Uh, it was either between 40 and 60 miles. So they're right the there. Well, yeah, yeah, not that far. Not that far. Actually, if we're 40 or 60 miles above the Earth, it, you, it's really high. How long did it take him to get down? Um, not very long. Um, tens of minutes. The whole flight down was like half an hour. And are they constantly burning or they just burn a little and fall and then kind um, of do retro rockets at, at the, the end? The, the main power to powered flight, it, it was powered most of the way down. Most of the way down. Wow. Yeah, right, right. So that's a significant amount of fuel. Significant amount of fuel, right. Now, one advantage, of course, is the moon doesn't have as much gravity as the Earth. Like one-sixth? One-sixth as much. So it doesn't take as much to get you off of there, of course. But at the same time, it's still a significant amount of fuel. And you have to have that main engine being steerable and then little thrusters to be able to do your maneuvers when you're trying to dock. Yep. Docking and undocking. So you have to have fuel for all of those as well. How the heck does this thing stay stable? Is it gyroscopically done? Does that work in... The yep. gyroscopes work in low gravity. I don't yeah, even gyro know. Yeah, gyroscopes of, of Is that what kept it stable? That's one of the pieces that kept it stable. So uh, look at the thing. It just seems so tippy. You know, mm -hmm. like, gee, you could easily, well, this, if this burner burned a fraction of a second more, it would tip. Did they manually guide it down, like, mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. with little, yep. uh, mm -hmm. what were their controls like? The burner controls, buttons or handles, a joystick? A, a joystick type device. Yeah, joystick. And so you have forward, back. I mean, s similar to uh, as if you're flying a helicopter type thing. How do they practice this landing? Because, you know, it's so, in low so, gravity. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, another great piece of technology that got developed. Um, so to simulate the lunar landing, you, um, you have simulators similar to the way we have simulators for airplanes today. So you have a thing that looks like what you're going to fly, and it's sitting on jack stands that can adjust the position so it feels like it's moving around. But then you have to be looking through the window and seeing what the lunar surface is going to look like. Now, today, we would do that with a digital screen and computed scenery, the same way you see in video games, which looks super, super real. 
They didn't have that in the 60s. So there was actually a model of the moon with a little track over it and a little camera. And depending on what they did, that camera actually physically moved over the model and projected this image through this window. Now, the window gave you about a 110-degree field of view, so more than 90 degrees. And so you needed optics in there so that when you looked through it, it looked like that. And a guy named Al Nagler invented those optics, eventually started an optics and telescope company, makes all sorts of great things called Teleview. That's a whole other thing. If you're an astronomer or an amateur astronomer, Teleview optics are out there, very high quality. But he invented the optics to give you a 110-degree field of view and designed the optics on the little camera. So as the camera moved around, the image you saw looked just like the moon. So that's how you practiced. You actually looked through this thing at a screen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Flew it around and learned how to fly it on what looked like the moon. Amazing technology for the time. Did they go right down, or did they get close and hover a little bit, or did you just just go right? You couldn't mess around. You just had to go down. You had to go down, but you, but you did travel sideways as well as you were coming down. You didn't, didn't come straight down, and that was critical because as Armstrong was was uh, navigating to where they intended to come down, they found a boulder field, and that would have meant landing on a bunch of rock. And so he actually had to steer it farther than they had planned. Go sideways more uh, before he put it down. And then even then they were still in rocks, but luckily ones that were small enough that it didn't affect Must the landing be of the spacecraft. Sorry. Must be interesting to hear the conversations during this part. We're, we're familiar with the last minute, last mm -hmm. second conversations, but it must be real interesting to just, if you had a, an audio book of an, like that entire descent mm -hmm. and landing and maybe on the way home you could pop in the, return to the, the the module just the things that came up and in my reading i heard that as they were going sideways they were seeing things before they thought they were, they were going too fast and they were seeing things three seconds ahead of time they were about three seconds too fast which is going to throw them way off on their actual landing site is that sounds like something you've heard of I don't know the details of that part of it. I know they had to do, as I described, some, some local navigating to find a place that they could actually land on because there were smaller craters and rocks and things that, that you couldn't have known about from, from Earth that you had to navigate around and land. So I don't know the details of, of that. Uh, there was some concern that, that the thrusters would blow up dust and, and cause problems. Sure, because, again, when you don't know what the surface is really going to be like, you, I mean, there's a certain amount of, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go down there, and hopefully that that surface doesn't damage anything. In fact, they were very surprised when he came out and looked underneath that, you know, there was a burn mark, uh, you know, in the soil right below where the engine was, but very little damage outside of that. So it was a much more stable material than they thought it might be. Okay. So 
They get real close. Mm -hmm. Down, 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 down. I read that they, the thrusters exposed some rocks at the last minute, and they just had to go. It. You just have to say, mm -hmm. and just put whatever it, it is. It is. We just got to put it down. Yeah. And, and did they have a little thing, stuff. a sensor hanging from the bottom, so mm -hmm. they knew they were six feet away? Um, yeah, there was like a, a long pin. In fact, if you see the picture of the limb, there was a long sensor uh, off the leg, so they'd have a, a, a contact detector because you couldn't see directly below you, of right. course. And so when those would make contact, it's like, okay, we're close, and then you could kill the engine, it would just settle that last, you know, foot so you'd or two. kill it, the... and the engine winding down would, did it wind down? No, it just shut off. Just shut off, and then it would just drop. But again, you're in one-sixth gravity, right. so it doesn't Six feet, drop one-sixth gravity. Just, and down Bang. you are, and there you are. Okay, perfect. So, folks, we just landed on the moon, and we're going to find out what takes place. How long were they there? Uh, how long were they out what were, the, what were the surprises when they stepped out? How did they decide who would go out first? Because there's some controversy over that. I mean, after all, who remembers the guy back in the, the module? Not so many. People remember Neil Armstrong. Did What happens next? They shut the engine off. They shut the engine off. They, we, we, um, we they were supposed down, to have a, this thing off. They were supposed to have a long rest, um, but of course they were pretty hyped up and asked for permission to start their actual moonwalk early, and they did. Um, there was a there's there's been an ongoing conversation about who woulda coulda should have been the first one out. Uh, Buzz Aldrin was officially the lunar module pilot was his title, but none of the lunar module pilots actually piloted the lunar modules. The commanders all did. Um, and um, the commanders were determined to be the first ones out. And so Armstrong was the first one out and the first one to step on. Lunar so it didn't surface. have anything to do with their positioning in the, in the module or Not particularly. nothing technically. It was simply who gets to go first? Who gets to go first? And NASA management made the decision that the commanders were going to go first. And so Armstrong was the first one out. Um, and there was some... Was on the surface for some 20 minutes or so, and then Aldrin joined him. Um, the two of them were out there. Um, not for very long. I mean... Two and a half a hours? Time. It, it was a couple hours um, was the total time. Uh, you know, Later Apollo missions, the, the times were much longer. Uh, of course... You're limited by how much air you can carry. I mean, if you if you're going to be out for days, you know you can't carry that much air with you. Of course, um, one of the things that people forget about is that Apollo wasn't just about getting there; it was also about doing science. And so there were there was a seismograph to measure whether the moon had earthquakes. There was a uh, piece of prism glass that was put there so we could bounce laser beams off the moon and measure its distance very accurately. Uh, there were experiments to bring Back rocks. Let's see what the moon's made out of. A whole bunch of science that had to get done. Back to that prism. So we were able to shoot a laser mm -hmm. so accurately they could hit a prism that a guy can hold in his hand? Well, it was an array of prisms that was a, a couple of feet across. Um, and the laser beam actually covers a much bigger area once it reaches the oh, moon. All but it, it bounces enough. But okay. it bounces enough light back that you can get that pulse back, and you can time that accurately enough. We know the distance of the moon to fractions of an inch. It's changing, right? And it changes. It changes. The moon is slowly drifting away. As all bodies are drifting apart. Well, this one is drifting away because of the tides that it creates. So the the fact that the the, the water actually puts some 
basically a drag on the moon, okay, is speeding the moon up, and the moon is therefore moving farther away. And we'll eventually, it, it will never leave the Earth. I mean, the, the solar system will end long before the moon gets super, super far away. But the moon is slowly drifting farther away, fractions of an inch a year. Um, but, you know, that, that's real. How far are it? How it's roughly 240,000 miles away. Okay. Quarter of a million miles. And so, any other science to discuss or any other activities on the surface to discuss? Um, well, those were the, some of the key instruments um, that they brought and they collected uh, the moon samples. Do you remember um, where you were? Of course you do. Where were you when this happened? Um, I was at home in New York um, as a... Uh, let's see. A lad. And, uh, yeah, well, a lad, very interested in space, and um, parents got us up in the middle of the night to watch that. Uh, and that was, I mean, I, all of us, I think everybody everywhere was glued to their TVs watching the moon. One of the things we were talking about at the break was the fact that you know, the moon landing is one of the few things, maybe the only thing I can think of, where the entire world was riveted to one thing and everybody rooting for it to succeed. A tremendous thing for, for everybody on the planet. Kind of a global victory, really. A global, a tremendous global victory, I think. Very much uh, so. For humanity. Oh, one interesting thing, that uh, little statement upon... Just before he stepped off, small step for man. Mm -hmm. He meant to say a man. man. Yeah. Or he kind of just slurred the A. Is mm -hmm. that it? Yeah, something like that. A giant leap for mankind. A and, great quote. And uh, he stepped down. Any any uh, interviews with him that you've read that spoke of his feelings when he stepped on the moon? I mean, stepping on the moon. Feeling that little give of the two inches of dust. Yeah, I... Everything that I know of, you know, he, he, the, the consummate professional, he was there to do the job, and he had trained for it, and he was there to get it right. And uh, I, I, I have not heard anything in particular about what his emotional response was besides this is what I'm doing, and I've got to get it right. So how long were they there altogether, including sleeping, like 21 hours? They, they slept yeah, for seven yeah, hours? Yeah, yeah, le yeah less than a day. Less than a day. And were, then, were there any, what were the factors in when they had to leave? Uh, oh, there's something we didn't discuss is the, the angle of the sun mm -hmm. and why it was important and it also limited the window of time or times when they could land on the moon. The angle of the sun was really important. And that's super interesting. There are a couple of things that, that, that uh, play into this. Um, one is uh, the lighting on the moon. When you're there, you want lighting at a reasonable angle so that you have shadows so you can see. So anybody who's a skier and you've ever been on a ski slope in very flat lighting, it's very difficult to see. It's very dangerous right. to be skiing you in very flat You have a lighting. bump or a dip coming and you don't know. And you don't even know. You need a shadow there to let you know that it's there. Another thing was um, you did not want the sun and the earth to be close in the sky because... Um, you would get uh, radio interference in communications and data. And so you wanted to have things in just the right combination of places so that the moon be well lit, sun would not be in a bad location, all, all of these pieces would play together. And so you have to put that timing together. And then as far as when to lift off, well, you can't just, it, it's not like driving. Let me say, 
I'll meet you at the beach at three o'clock and somebody drives to the beach in one car and you drive to the beach in the other car and you meet at three o'clock because everybody's moving and everybody's in orbit. So in order to rendezvous, right? You're leaving the moon, you wanna get back in that capsule, you have to take off at just the right time, at the right speed, at the right angle, so that as you come up, you come up at the exact same space and are moving in the same direction at the same speed. It's not just getting to the same place, you might fly right by them. You have to be going the same speed, the same direction at the same time. So they have one crack at this. If they get this math wrong, they just go skittering out into space because they won't have enough fuel. You don't, have, you don't or have the fuel to change oxygen your orbit or anything to wait for the thing to come back around. Right, right. Wow. Uh, that had to be pretty hairy. Uh, and and the, I would think the angle that you, you would take off would be straight up, but no, they took no. off at an angle, huh? Right. And, and in fact, all launches are like that. So even when the rocket takes off from Florida to start with, it doesn't fly straight up. Shortly after, it goes straight up for a short period of time, and then it tips over because actually, to go to orbit, you want to go sideways. You just want to go fast enough so you fall outside the atmosphere. That's right. And so, so to get to the right altitude, you you have to bend over and go sideways. So the same thing when the Lem took off, it came up vertically for a period of time and then pitched over, so that it then would go into an orbit that would match the orbit of the command module that could pick them up. And they had to match the speed. And they had to match the speed, the height, the position, and the timing. You have to get there at the same time that they're there. It's pretty incredible. So the orbit is way over here. Mm -hmm. And they have to time exactly right, mm -hmm. exact speed, mm -hmm. and exact angle. And they're flying this manually, correct? Mm -hmm. So. How would you ever get the exact right angle manually? I can't imagine that. It's you just have to be good well, at your job, well, I guess. Yeah. Well, you you do have a guidance computer. It's it's a very by modern standards very rudimentary, but at the time very advanced little computer that is you know you fed this information into it as to what the angles and they've been pre-calculated for you. You're not calculating it while you're flying. It's been calculated on the ground. So you have to burn this one for Four seconds. Right. You have to do this, and it's going, and then the computer's going to pitch it over a certain amount, and so on, and those things would go together to get you into the right place. So if you burn for six seconds one time instead of four seconds, you're, you're in trouble. You're buzzard meat. Yeah. And remember, Apollo 10, the prior flight, they had, had mimicked this. all this. Yeah. So that gave you the confidence that you could pull it off with 11. Now, of course, Apollo 10 hadn't taken off from the surface, but from its roughly 10% low point, it was then able to do the appropriate burn to be in the right place at the right time get, to get picked up and to be brought back. How about how long did it take for them to hook up with the orbiter? Oh, that, that was a matter. Uh, also, it's, it's less than an hour. Really? It's like on the order of an hour or so. I don't know the details. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't take that long. And everything was smooth from that point on? Everything was smooth from that point on. Transferred all their materials back into the command module, jettisoned the LEM burned the service module engine while they're on the backside of the moon, left the moon, three days later, landed on Earth. And of course, when they came back, we were still very concerned about what contamination there might have been. We don't know if there was something weird that they might come back. Nothing had ever gone to the moon and come back. And so they were put in isolation. So they, they didn't get to kind of you know, st you know stand and wave at everybody. They were put in isolation for quite a while. A couple of weeks? Yeah, it was, it was a number of weeks before they were allowed out 
uh, to just to be sure that they had not brought back anything strange from space. We had no idea what was out there. That was pretty, pretty neat. And landed in the liquid landing. Liquid landing. Now, they're la- they're relanding rockets on right on hard ground. Ground, correct? I mean, uh, launch launch vehicles. Yeah. So so um, the the separate booster rockets that are that are now being used um, can be brought back down and then reused again, and they will land right on their little pads that they've been set out. What is it that we are doing now that we couldn't do then? Computers. Just computers, just the computational thing? Exactly. Uh, Computers, GPS. Computers and GPS are the two things that are making a lot of things happen now that you couldn't do back then. Um, Give folks an idea of the teeny, weeny, weeny computational power on board this thing. Oh, I, you, you, your your phone blows away everything they everything they had combined. Your phone can blow away. The original awful iPhone mm-hmm. had more than they had. Oh yeah, way more. I don't because the early iPhone was kind of awful. <laughs> I don't understand how they could do all that compu- computing with an iPhone. Yeah, but there it is. Let's take a break, and we have one more segment. Talk a little bit about the future, perhaps. And about a project that Doug's colleague is working on for the future. I guess I guess there is going to be a future of the space program. We'll find. Well, we out. hope so. We hope so. After this on WBZ. What are you talking about? Your evening. You may find yourself wide awake in the early hours of the day, and you may find yourself locking your radios on to Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 10:30. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pay more attention to your schoolwork and listen to the radio. You always listen to the radio. Our lives are ruined already. You still have a chance to grow up and be somebody. Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy night. But a night it's different world. If you're there, speak to me. Jay Talking, Bradley J, WBZ News Radio 1030. One final segment with Doug Arian as we wrap up our big event here talking about the Apollo 11 landing and all of the things that went into it. Let's see. Oh, well, we're going to get into the future and talk about the future of perhaps manned spaceflight and going back to the moon, actually, or Mars. But your colleague actually developed something that is necessary to go back to the moon, or helpful, let's say. Yeah, so one of the things we mentioned earlier was all this dust that got on the astronauts suits after wandering around the moon and that dust was very very fine and we get into the works it was very, you know it's a problem so you need to be able to filter that if you're going to go back to the moon especially if you're going to go for a longer period of time so it turns out that it's not that easy to filter out very very fine dust from the air and my colleague kevin crosby uh who's another physics professor at carthage developed and tested a method using something called a cyclone. It's one of the technologies for filtering, but it had to be tested to see if it worked in zero gravity. 
right? I mean, these things are used on Earth. And so uh, he and a number of our students built a simulator, a test thing that ran some dust and air through one of these. And then it was flown on the zero-gravity airplane, the NASA airplane that goes in the parabolas, that were, you know, nicknamed the Vomit Comet. Uh, and he and the students actually flew it and ran it and tested it and showed that it would work so that it could then be used on the next generations of spacecraft. Uh, one of the other projects he's working on is developing new ways to measure uh, how much fuel is in a tank, because in zero gravity, you can't just have a little needle at the bottom. And he's developed the technology to do that as well. So um, very proud of our little college has done a lot of work towards hoping, you know, helping NASA make another moon mission possible. So we developed a gas gauge, really. You have to develop a gas gauge that works in, in fuel tanks in zero gravity. So back to the filter. A little more specific on how it works. It, you explained to me it. So imagine it's like a centrifuge, kind of. It's sort of a centrifuge. Um, so it, it it's a uh, sort of a metal tube of a of a particular shape, and the air comes into the top and spins around it inside this tube, and it's that spinning that throws the dust out where it gets collected at the bottom, and the clean air comes out. So it's a it's a neat technology. After seventeen, we lost interest. I mean, we did it, we went there, and then we were done. How come? Well, um, the American public as a whole has a pretty short attention span for lots of things, all sorts of things. It's like it's very exciting the first time, and the second time it's like, all right, that's great. And even by Apollo 13, notwithstanding that it garnered a lot of attention because we had an explosion on it, um, the television broadcasts weren't even being picked up by the networks. It just wasn't exciting to audiences anymore. So after doing it for quite a few years, um, and a lot of pressure was being put on to spend the money on other things, on domestic programs as opposed to space programs, um, the program was canceled. Okay. And then the shuttle program picked up, but... Right, the shuttle program picked up. There was that was going to be uh, but 10 years commercially later. viable. So. Right, right. Okay. Right, almost 10 years later. However, we did get a lot of uh, technology through the, the Moonshot program that we currently enjoy. Could you go through some of those? There's a lot of stuff. All sorts of medical sensors that were developed for that. Uh, all sorts of, um, well, the space program as a, as a whole, being able to preserve food and make it reconstitutable. So, you know, if you go camping and get some of that camping food that you can just rehydrate while you're camping, well, actually, some of that technology was developed originally for things like the space program. Do they use, really use Tang? Uh, yes, they did. Uh, Tang actually did exist before the space program. It was not invented in the space program, but it got famous because of the space program. Tang. A lot Tang. of folks wouldn't even remember Tang. Oh, yeah. It was famous for the space program. Tang. Yeah. It was, folks, Tang orange. it's orange juicy. It mixed with water, and it was very tart. Yes. Yes, it was. All right. We have um, about four minutes. Oh, any, yeah, any other? A whole bunch of others, but yeah. Give, we us, could well, send the... give us a couple more. It's fun. Well, uh, one of the major things is we, we talked about the fuels for these rockets were very, very cold liquids. So there had to be techniques for liquefying gases. And, you know, being able to do that efficiently has been very important. So all sorts of technologies have, have come out of it. Now, we're hearing more about reinvigoration of this, of the space program. Is that to go to the moon or the, to Mars? And if we lost interest, then are we somehow interested again? I don't know what the, the, the interest of the average American is in it. Um, there's pressures, of course, on how much budget we have and what we can do with it. Um, 
But uh, the current administration at least is saying we ought to go back and we should do things and we should do it soon. To the moon. To the, to the moon. And what can we do? In principle, we could do the kinds of things we've done before um, in terms of being able to get people there, get them back safely. Uh, can can a you lot colonize of it? Um, in principle, sure. But you would in say, practice, well, why would you? Right? In, in practice, <laughs> it's, it's a matter of you know, what the resources uh, could be used for. We now know that there is water on the moon, for example, uh, which wasn't known for sure uh, for a long time. Um, so, and again... Ultimately, there are going to be technological spinoffs that we can't even envision now. If you go to do something, there are things you'll have to invent. You'll find solutions to problems you may not even know you had. Doug, thank you. Uh, you're involved. You, you were involved in a program that made telescopes at cost for people all over the world, and that was very successful. You got 250,000 telescopes out there, yep. and you sold that. Company to uh, a so larger company? Yeah, so Explore so, Scientific um, of Arkansas has now taken over the Galileo Scope project. Uh, we're very excited that they are. Uh, they have much more capacity to keep this going and to support science education around the world. Uh, we're very excited about that. Um, Rick Feinberg and I managed it for over 10 years, and I, th I think for two volunteers and uh, our investment, being able to get a quarter of a million educational kits in 100 countries was a great accomplishment. And you're still involved in the Darkness Project, which is very, very important to you. It is. Uh, we're working very hard to get a good chunk of northern Maine protected as a dark sky reserve. It's the only area in the eastern two-thirds of the country that still has a natural sky, and we want people to be able to experience that. And all the light, we have 45 seconds, all the lights that we see from space, from out our window, are really bad for for nature, for example, can you give me a couple of key ways that it's unhealthy? Uh, a lot. A, a lot of the artificial light we produce has resulted in uh, a, a big drop in pollination by insects and birds. So flowers and food and fruits and things are, are under pressure. It affects our health. It uh, increases cancer risk. It creates glare, makes roads unsafe. It's 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 unfortunate. Makes that we birds have so fly much. into the side of buildings. Yeah, they, they get disoriented they get disoriented when they're migrating it, it has tremendous effects on ourselves and nature and bringing it full circle it's only when you get into space you, you realize how lit up we are correct that's right you look down you see all that light okay doug thanks for coming all the way from your awesome palace in new hampshire down here to nasty old boston and i hope you have uh, had to, a little bit of fun and whenever you want to come back please feel free I had a great time. I love coming down here and spending an evening with you. All right. Thank you very it's, much, Bradley. Yeah, it's WBZ. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.